Welcome to the Recovery Hour podcast, where we choose to recover out loud by sharing our personal stories of inspiration, hope, and triumph. Together, we can end the stigma and shame typically tied to mental illness and the disease of addiction. We are proof that recovery does happen. Joy and laughter may be involved. This is the Recovery Hour with Lori Winfeld. Thank you so much for joining us today. I cannot even tell you how excited I am to finally get one of my friends and my gosh, what an inspiration to the show, Lisa Lee. Hello. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Lori, and thank you for having me. Um, I'm really excited to be here, and I absolutely adore you and all that you do. So. Thank you for having me. Oh, of course. You're the sweetest and um, a huge part of the Reno recovery world and healthcare and homelessness and so many freaking things. And I don't think we'll ever have time to go over all of it. So we'll definitely have you back. I want to let the listeners know the reason Lisa is top of mind for the fact that recovery month is September. She does so much with our community in helping others and also the awareness of so much. I say so much because it's so much. I mean, we're talking about harm reduction. We're talking about multiple pathways to recovery. We're talking about experiencing homelessness and how to get people back into homes. We're talking about a woman who is pursuing her PhD, Dr. P.H., it's a DRPH. Yes. DRPH. And we'll get into that later for those of us that just stuck with undergrad. So you can tell us what that means. And then, um, yeah, just amazing things. So Lisa, what I would love is if you have um, it in you, let's talk about your personal story because that really will help us understand and help the listeners understand why you feel so passionately and why your life really truly outside of your family revolves around recovery and, and helping others. Sure. So I don't ever know where to start <laughs> when I'm telling my story, but well, what I will say is um, my experimentation with drugs and alcohol started early. I always say that trauma was my gateway drug because I, re I really do believe at the base of dependence on substances is some sort of traumatic event um, or events. And then people self-medicate because drugs work, right? They show up and, and that includes alcohol. Alcohol is also a drug. And these things show up for us. And the thing about um, my particular drug of choice, uh, heroin, is that it kind of shows up and then shackles you um, because you become on it and really can't function without it. So anyways, I will say to start out that I did go to like all of the schools that are problematic schools, lots of you know, gangs and fighting and that kind of still continues to this day, right? Except now students have the ability to capture that on a, on a cell phone and video record that. They probably don't say that anymore. I'm probably showing my age with a video record, <laughs> um, but they record it and then it goes viral. And I'm like, yeah, it, it was just like that when I was in those schools, right? And so, you know, just a lot of things happened in my youth 
and drugs and alcohol were there. Mm -hmm. And so despite all of that, though, I was a really good student. Mm -hmm. I was in the GT program. It used to be the AT, the academically talented. And then it moved to gifted and talented program. And that was a source of um, being socially ostracized, especially when you're kind of from the hood. And, um, you know, you're in these like, goody two shoes programs. And so that kind of makes you a social pariah. And then later, you know, in all the AP advanced placement and honors courses got out of high school a whole year early. Ooh, And so it sounds like a lot of potential, which Mm -hmm. I think a lot of us in recovery have heard that said to us at probably multiple times in our life, like you have so much potential. For um, what? And that's that's so shaming because it's like you could have been a contender, you know. And uh you could be so great. You could have been something. It's like, well, I am. Uh, I I actually am something. And so it's just like, I don't know. Um that's I, I don't say that to people, listeners. Please don't say that to people. Like, yeah, it's so much potential. <laughs> it's like you still have so much potential because you are alive and you are breathing air and and we're always and, learning and growing, right? Always. I mean, you have like potential for what? I mean, somebody yes. else's idea of what you should be to be successful. Right. I mean, we're complicated houseplants, like <laughs> nourish us, water us, like, <laughs> give us some sunshine. And so, you know, hearing that and then of course, so I graduate and like go to Seattle and run out of money and become homeless and and sort of kind of fall into uh, opiates, right? And I remember the first time I ever used opiates, I was like, this is it. This is what I've been searching for this whole time. Like, this is it. Mm. And if I could have had a marriage ceremony with the drug, <laughs> like I I would have. And I did think of that. I'm like, this is it. Like, this is this is my long-term relationship. This and is- now for for sake of like understanding your your use, like so you went through high school and then you were were you using then? I was not using opiates, okay. but I was, you know, I smoked a lot of weed. Yeah. I didn't really have a chaotic or problematic relationship with drugs mm-hmm. and alcohol until, you know, I met my partner, Heroin, who actually was really an abusive partner and didn't give, you know, any, uh, I don't know what I can say on this, but everything any, you can say, you can say any Fs. Yeah. It, it did not give any fucks about me. Yes. We're right? explicit. But I loved it. So um, the whole substance abuse thing, like I really hate that term. It's like, no, that substance was kind of abusive to me. It was kind of kind of a terrible partner. Um, so I think once you fall into that and you fall into that chaotic relationship mm-hmm. with drugs where you're really not able to maintain your housing, your health, your dignity, right. your self-worth, your just kind of you lose everything. Yeah. You know, it's kind of rinsed away and that spoon and that needle. And then like, I want to shift it because I don't want to fixate on war stories. For sure. I'm just wondering your transition to your marriage with opiates, like how that when you say that, oh my gosh, this was it. And I finally, like, what had you already experienced that this was the one? Well, I mean, I, I think I had tried a lot of stuff. I mean, but I will say about my use, like, when I did something, I did it 150%, mm-hmm. 400%, right? So I remember the first time taking acid, I took two 10 strips. I don't know what that means. 
Well, that's a lot. That's, a, that's, a, that's like not a normal, um, I don't know what a normal thing is, but when I tell people that they're like, what? Um, and that is just how I used, like, mm. I really was extreme and I put myself into everything I did. And yeah, drugs. which isn't surprising considering that's what you did with your education as well. I mean, you're just like, let's go, let's go. And, and unfortunately it was the same way, you know, with, with drugs. And so where did that land me? It landed me in jail a bunch on the streets in all kinds of positions and situations that were, you know, they were awful, especially for uh, a young woman because I was in my teens. Wow. And, um, and so I remember like the pivotal moment, which I, I didn't get into recovery right away mm -hmm. after this, because I had been, you know, on and off methadone for a while. And at this point I was, I was back into heroin. I was living under this overpass in San Francisco. There was kind of like this little dirt like hill and then this valley where people would go and they would do groin shots. So they were shooting up in their groin area. Um, at that time, there was a lot of necrotizing fasciitis. So that's like the flesh eating bacteria and people were getting like limbs cut off and muscles cut what? out of. Yeah, it was, it was really bad. And I remember waking up, you know, and, um, looking around and there was this mirror that was glued to the concrete under this overpass and people very politely, I might add, uh, would line up in the morning, early morning to do their wake up. And a wake up is, you know, the shot you do in the morning because you wake up and you're you're sick, you're in withdrawals. And people would line up to go use the mirror to shoot up in their neck, to do neck shots. And so that was kind of a piece where I'm like, God, like this is my life, right? Like mm -hmm. this is my life. There's a line around my my bed, a sleeping bag. Oh, and I, by the way, like I slept in my combat boots with my hood up with the stick, my weapon stick, I called it so that I could whap the rats because oh my rats gosh, had a chew, chew on my toes. But of course I was wearing my steel toes, which then your feet get all kind of funky. And mm. so it's just like, like people say, you know, giving socks to people experiencing homelessness is one of the most incredible acts of kindness you can give. I will right. definitely say, yes, that is like, it is an absolute essential. And so anyway, here I am. And I'm like, God, man, really? Like, this is my life, you know? And I remember just every day was just like, oh, it was just, everything was a chore. Everything was super hard. Of course, the police are always after you. And you know, trying to move you along. And it's just like the whole world is against you. And I remember like jokingly, I always had funny, funny things to do um, to make money. But one of them was panhandling on Market Street. And I'd be like, you know, spare a dime, stop a crime, spare a quarter for my disorder. Uh, but sometimes I was just like, can someone, can you see me? Am I still here? Do I still exist? Like, why won't anybody just acknowledge that I'm a human being. Mm -hmm. And so that feeling of being unseen, of the precarity of existing, you know, seeing friends get hot, you know, be hospitalized for heart infections like pericarditis and endocarditis, seeing people overdose and die, seeing people lose their limbs, like all of this kind of culminated in like, I really don't want to do this anymore. Right. My soul is just tired. 
and I don't know what to do, but I don't want to do this anymore. And so I ended up, oh my gosh, I ended up like going back to Oregon, just all this craziness, like being dope sick, hitchhiking up to Oregon. Um, and then I ended up back to Reno because I would always end up back in Reno, you mm-hmm. know, where I was raised. And um, I got on methadone. That was the very last time I was on methadone. Got back on methadone. And then I met this like really kind of weird dude. And he was like, hey, they're doing interviews for this seafood company to go up to Alaska. And they'll fly you up there. And they pay for your housing. And they pay for your food and all that. And I'm like, heck, yeah. Like, this is it. (laughs) I'm going to do this geographically. Because that was all over the country. Like, I was homeless everywhere. But I'm like, this is it. Like, this is how I'm going to beat this. Yeah. And I did. Like, Alaska was where I feel like I became a, a person again. And um, I went up there. I couldn't look anyone in the eye. I was always just, you know, bowed shoulders, looking down at my feet, um, really bad social anxiety. And, you know, I um, I worked really hard up there. And when I got there, they said that there were certain jobs that they didn't let women do. And so I was like, I'm going to do those jobs. Of course you are. <laughs> so I did. Like, yep. I remember, so the foreman goes, yeah, I don't let women touch my machines. And I had no idea what this machine was, but I was going to touch it. I was, right? I was going to touch this machine. You were just going to find it. I (laughs) I was going to grind on it and just like, I'm touching this machine. Well, what he meant by that is this fillet machine. So you, you feed the fish onto this belt, you know, it's like 153 fish per you know per minute going on this belt wow um eyes eyes to the left bellies to the right you have to feed him a certain way and it fillets the fish women weren't allowed to work on that machine so i was bound to determined to mm-hmm. be a royal pita pain in the ass mm-hmm. to my foreman and finally he gave me the shot um to try it out you know before that before you explain how that went trying it out like what yeah. was the reasoning like are women just not quick enough like it's just a really dom- male dominated industry um but there's not like a you don't need a dick to actually like use no. the machine you need it's big like muscles you're not fast enough or you don't have muscles is what it is yeah and it's really sort of fuckers a misogynist industry what i learned mm-hmm. um Okay, sorry. I totally went off. I totally no, that's went off a, on a really tangent. good question. I'm just like, what the fuck? Yeah. Like, why? Why exactly? Like, I didn't know you needed a dick to operate this machine. My bad. Exactly. Is that how you turn it on and off? You just I'll bring mine from my drawer to work. No worries. Um, Doesn't have to be real flush. <laughs> fuck. Okay, so you finally got to use the machine. He gave you a shot. Yeah. He gave me a shot, and I rocked it. Good for you. And I became the number one, the fastest driver. And they gave me this blue botter hat. And then he wanted to train me to be a mechanic. And so anyway, so I felt like, yeah, I did. I did something right. Mm. And that feeling of self-efficacy, what I know is now self-efficacy, right? I didn't have really a term for it at that time. It was like, yeah, I did a thing. And I was good at the thing. (laughs) And so then I did more things and I felt more comfortable doing new things. Um, And so that really was the beginning of my true, like this, this iteration, this 20 year iteration of um, recovery. And I ended up coming back to Reno via a whole nother 
story yeah. via Albuquerque and a bunch of craziness, but came back to Reno and um, got a job here within six days and was really focused on, okay, I'm going to make new friends. I'm going to have a new circle. And I will say, you know, um, 12 step is not my gig. That's not my pathway. It was early on. Mm -hmm. So when I got back to Reno, 12 step was my pathway. And then I found that there were other things that, that were like drugs and alcohol weren't the center of conversation. Oh yeah. And yeah. um, so I did those things. So I I went to like, there were these drum circles at John mm. Champion Park every week and fire spinners and all that. And so I did that. I did, um, went to open mics. I wrote a ton. I've always written. That's always like, um, be therapeutic for me mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. writing. And so um, through a fr- another friend who was in early recovery and his writing crop, <laughs> like he was very goth boy, very pretty boy. And I remember he's like, you need to share that with the world. And I was like, I'm not sharing my writing with the world. Like that's my soul laid bare. <laughs> no, like that's like reading my diary in front of the world. Like no way would I read it out loud. And he's like, no, really? Like somebody's going to connect to that. I connect with that. Come do open mic with me. And I was like, no. And I remember him like hitting the table with his writing crop. And he's like, you're going to read that. And I was like, okay, like, all right. Um, And I remember like the first time I read, I was on my knees with my back to the audience. That's how Mm. bad my social anxiety was, Mm. right? And it it took me a while before I could face the audience Mm -hmm. and, and just lay it all out there. And that really, you know, pivoted me into trying to improve my life. Yeah. Whatever means that was. And going back to school was one of those means and took me a really long time to even finish my bachelor's, you know, and life happens, right? Life happens and, and things that you don't expect come up, right? Like I had a, my daughter when I was 30 and was it found myself to be a single mom. And then so like sometimes working two jobs and going to school and all of the things like I just was driven to make my life meaningful, to be able to help others. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people in early recovery, they're like, I want to be a drug and alcohol counselor. And I was <laughs> definitely one of those people. That so was I. <laughs> I got kicked out because I was in an honors class that I signed up for. I was with a bunch of freshmen. The, the instructor was like, um, is there anybody that's not supposed to be in here? Because you're supposed to have like all the requirements beforehand. And I never raised my hand because I, you know, of course I deserve to be there regardless yeah. of what the prerequisites were for this course. That's right. You <laughs> did the prerequisites. You, you did the research. I did. You deserve to be there. Oh my gosh. So you found yourself now you're in your 30s. You have your daughter and you're you're solo. I'm solo and trying to plug away at school. And at that time, like I said, I was going to be a drug and alcohol counselor. And I'm super grateful that I went that pathway. But then I was like, you know, I don't think this is for me. I went to massage school actually Ooh. Um, in, in Nevada City and, and did massage for a while because I had this big dream of like opening this center Mm-hmm. for women seeking recovery who experience trauma. And I thought, you know, we we address the mind, we address the behavior, right? Um, we 
we don't address the body um, and kind of all the trauma that we, that our bodies remember that we carry around with us. And for me, massage school was really learning how to have safe touch mm. as a woman. And it was really healing um, to know that I could trust someone's hands, that they wouldn't harm me. And I wanted to give that to others. And so I thought I wrote this business plan and I was like, you know, for this place called Phoenix Rise, it would be the center that focused on nutrition, wellness, and kind of body, spirit, mind, the whole package specifically for women. Um, And then somehow I was like, oh, sociology is really cool. I think I'm more of a macro person. So I ended up kind of go being routed into sociology. And then I found anthropology and medical anthropology specifically. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. Like how people view their health and wellness and how that's kind of culturally constructed by so many different factors and just honoring kind of how, how people see their own health and wellness Mm -hmm. through their lens rather than your lens, trying to sort of superimpose your values onto someone else. And that really resonated with me. So I ended up going that way into anthropology and minoring in sociology and religious studies. And then I ended up getting a master's in anthropology, again, focusing on medical anthropology and specifically doing research um, within a syringe services program. Okay. What people call needle exchange and looking how looking at how harm reduction is a discourse sort of creates this social space that really provides kind of an anchor to people that are marginalized from these other spaces. Mm -hmm. And I really felt that that resonated for me as well, like not being welcome anywhere. Can't use the bathroom at the Starbucks. You can't go to the gas station and get the key to the bathroom. You can't sit on this park bench. You can't sit over here kind of the theme of hostile architecture to keep you from like existing in spaces yeah, and really not having that space where you belong. And I think for me, harm reduction has shaped me so much and really saved my life mm-hmm. when I was out there using back in the day where people were, were taking criminal risks to, you know, to distribute clean syringes and a sandwich and an orange. Or right, whatever. right. I was just going to ask you if, you know, I probably have some listeners here that haven't heard the term harm reduction. So when you speak of that, what exactly are you talking about? Sure. So there's sort of two ways to think about it. Harm reduction with a small H and a small R, which is really a set of public health strategies mm-hmm. to reduce risk. Acknowledging that drug use is a thing, Right. Um, a thing that exists. People have been using drugs and alcohol for a really long time. So you acknowledge that people do this. So how do we keep people safe while they're doing this? Right. How do we get people to engage in their wellness so that they're they're making you know that little positive step towards their health and wellness, whatever that looks like for them? So mm-hmm. when we think about harm reduction, we can think about things like seatbelts or masks during the pandemic. But we can also think about things like sterile injection equipment or safe smoking equipment or supervised consumption sites that are now kind of overdose prevention centers. 
Um, so we can think about those public health strategies to reduce risk, including the risk of, you know, transmitting HIV AIDS or hepatitis mm-hmm. C or even COVID, right? When you're sharing right, right. snorting supplies or smoking supplies during the pandemic, you're risking kind of circulating, um, yeah. you know, this this pretty vicious um, respiratory disease. So then that's small H, small R, capital H, capital R is more kind of the aligning with people that are marginalized and realizing that there is sort of this inequitable um, and historical oppression that -hmm. exists. And so aligning with people that are marginalized to create meaningful change, kind of the macro lens of harm reduction. And so you can think of looking at how the overdose crisis has impacted black and brown communities. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of disparities there as far as fatalities go. And we're seeing that in Nevada as well. You can look at it through the lens of, gosh, you know, transgender folks um, experience more violence, poor health outcomes, a lot of addiction, like all of these things. So you can align with the most impacted by we're having a little technical difficulties and it seems as if your internet is failing (laughs) okay so you were in the depths of talking about capital h and capital r when you're um you went so marginalized groups Marginalized groups, yes, realizing that there are some some populations that are more impacted right. by these broader structures of oppression. So we can look at kind of the racial impacts of the war on drugs. We can look at who is getting overdose prevention and Narcan and who isn't, mm-hmm. the disparities there. We can look at um, sexual violence and mental health and substance use. Uh, among the LGBTQIA community, for example. So really standing in solidarity with folks that are um, that are more impacted by some of these macro structures that Got exist. It. Okay, understood. Thank you so much for that clarification. I know some of us listeners are like, what does that mean? Good stuff. Oh my gosh. So you have, you have so much. I, I just want to keep asking questions, but Having experienced that, I'm sticking with that San Francisco, if you hold a sign and then at some point you're like, is someone going to acknowledge me? Right. Am I a human? I get it. I'm not living that, you know, up to my potential that y'all were thinking I needed to, but um, yeah, I'm still alive. And I, I won't forget. And I, you probably were in this, we were, we were in something, I don't know, related to mental health or or recovery here in Reno. And I heard someone say, and it just sticks with me so much. And so I make a, a point to do this and I hope others will as well, is even if you're not going to participate in donating money or sharing something that someone's asking for, a smile, a look in the eye, a good morning, uh, hey, Good to see you again. I mean, there are people we see every single day standing there with a sign. And and I can imagine the warmth that they may feel by hearing somebody just say, 
I know you exist. I 100% agree with that. I think if that's all you can give is, wow, your eyes look really beautiful today, or that shirt looks really good on you, or hi, how are you? Yeah, you can't just ignore someone out of existence. Yeah. And I think people do that because it's uncomfortable. 100%. And people don't like being uncomfortable. But people in recovery, I feel like, have leaned into some discomfort along their pathway. Right. Um, You know, we've been to the depths and the pits, right? Whatever our drug of choice is, whether we experienced homelessness or not, whether we... um, it it doesn't matter, mm-hmm. right? It do, like all of that war story stuff yeah. really doesn't matter. It's not, you know, the trauma Olympics, right? Right. We we all know what that feels like to really kind of lose yourself and not even like not know how to find your way out, mm-hmm. right? And not know if you want to go on, right? I think we all know that. And so people in recovery and people who use drugs, I think, really know what it's like to be uncomfortable. And I will tell you, recovery is pretty uncomfortable. Right. Right. And that means we're growing. Like, I welcome discomfort because I know I'm growing. Mm -hmm. If I'm too comfortable, I know that it's time to up my game and learn something new (laughs) Um, because when you're not growing. And so, yeah seeing visible poverty, mm-hmm. seeing visible mental health issues where people might be in psychosis. Right. That can be uncomfortable for people. It can be just like death. You know, all of these things can be really uncomfortable for people. But I urge you just to say hi. There are so many people that I've said hello to, good morning, whatever. They are absolutely psychotic at the moment. They're screaming at someone. And it's like, hey, good morning. And they're like, hey, good morning. How are you? (laughs) Yeah. Right. Just they're not going to yell at you. Chances are right. They're going to acknowledge you. You acknowledge them. Mm -hmm. And so it's really not that scary. Like we're all human beings. And it always comes down to that's some, you know, even if somebody is like maybe not the kindest, right, that you're trying to help out and they're pretty like upset or angry, they're cussing you out. In the back of my mind, I'm like, they have a mother who thinks they're perfect Mm. and loves them. And that helps me to, you know, to still have compassion and kindness in that moment and not be like, well, F you, buddy, (laughs) you know, you cussing me out like you don't know me. Right. (laughs) Um, I I could do that, but that's not beneficial. It's not going to deescalate the situation. And so I just think, yeah, you have a mother who thinks you're perfect Mm. at some point thing on the planet, right? That you were heaven sent and loves you. And I think about that and um and I'm like, okay, I can be kind. Oh you know? Yeah, that's so great. That's so inspiring. Thank you for sharing that because yes, it's easy to get caught up in that. Like, well, how did you get there? Or you made that choice or whatever. But you know what? In the end, it we're hu- I let you said this. We're human. Let's just cut all the labels, cut all the talk, cut all the, and this is something actually I love. We, we have, we have spoken about off air and we'll get into as well is, um, just like you said, it was like, we're not in the trauma Olympics. So you very much support multiple pathways of recovery. What does that mean to you? What that means for me 
is that there, there is recovery for everyone and it doesn't have to look like someone else's. And also if people recover differently from you, it literally does not impact your recovery at all. Right. So for me, I think in the early days, and I mean, what I mean by early days, I mean, 20 years ago. So um, 2002, when I was a scared little newborn baby chicken with no feathers, that's how it felt, right? You're raw. You don't know how to cope with literally anything. Um, (laughs) Nothing. Nothing. And like... I just remember going, I don't know how to do anything. Like I didn't know how to string a day together. Like I didn't know. I don't think I, I can still always learning. (laughs) Did not know. I didn't know what to do. And so, um, just I'll never forget like how raw you feel and how vulnerable you feel. And so like in the early days, I remember being in certain pathways, um, meetings and, you know, I was on methadone. This is so before 2002 and people would say that's a crutch. Mm. Um, they would say, you're not really clean. And I was like, I did shower this morning. Thank you. (laughs) Um, and like, you know, I just wasn't good enough. And I thought, okay, so I'm here, right. I could be shooting black somewhere. I'm here. I, I don't know. I just think that that even the phrase you're dirty is yeah. just horrendous. And so for me, it was really harmful. And, you know, honestly, like I've struggled with saying I'm a person in long-term recovery mm-hmm. because I know that re- recovery communities have harmed people, including myself. Like I have got to acknowledge that this has harmed people because people have a a perception that it's a certain way, that it's right. a certain thing, that you have to be like this to be mm-hmm. in recovery. And and I just think that that's a bunch of hogwash, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, we had that personal conversation, right? You and I talked about that because my drug of choice was alcohol. Mm-hmm. And I definitely have had judgment in the recovery community that I am not in recovery because my drug, drug of choice is alcohol. And what I love you explaining was that difficulty of the day-to-day life of an alcoholic mm-hmm. versus having some kind of like hard street drug that you have to like sort of look for to get where alcohol is everywhere. Everywhere. Right. It's everywhere. And we talked about, um, just to clue the listeners in, we talked about even school events. So fundraisers for our our kids and, you know, the raffle prize is a wagon of wine um, and how I haven't had to deal with it. That's not a trigger for me. There's never been a, you win a, a wagon of heroin, right? <laughs> There's a wagon of heroin that you can win in this raffle. Like it just doesn't happen. It's not behind the counter at the store. It's not um, everywhere you go, you have to use this thing to fit in. And so I definitely think alcohol is like one of the worst substances to overcome. And also you can die from not drinking. I mean, heroin, you just feel like you're going to die, right? You want to die. You're like, someone put me out of my misery. This is awful. But the actual threat of dying is really, really low. Whereas alcohol, it's it's pretty high. You mm-hmm. know, it's pretty significant. And you, you know, it can require like medical attention and observation and right. management. And so, so yeah, I, I definitely don't 
think it matters your drug of choice. Yeah. And on the pathway bet, like there are so many pathways. There's smart recovery, there's Dharma recovery, there's refuge recovery, there's um no pathways, there's physical, you know, kind of the, focusing on your your physical health as a pathway to recovery. Mm-hmm. And there's many, many iterations of that. There are just so many different pathways that I really encourage people to 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 try them. Yeah. Just like you used to experiment with drugs, like experiment (laughs) with recovery pathways, (laughs) try them and see what resonates with you. And in harm reduction also is a pathway. Mm. And so I I just want to say that that definitely is a pathway to recovery. Um, And I don't really care if someone is abstinent or not abstinent, as long as they are improving their life. And it is not impacting their life. And I've seen people move away from drugs and alcohol and then start gambling. Right. And that rips apart their life, right? Now they've got the second mortgage and they're lying. Like the behaviors are the same. Yeah. Somebody said that to me once because I was freaking out in the very beginning. I definitely was very much like I can't touch anything with alcohol in it. I mean, I remember calling someone that was part of my 12-step group and asking him permission to have a uh, prescription medication that my doctor prescribed me because it had something in it's Tylenol with whatever they have, like whatever that thing is. And I was so paranoid that I was going to lose my sobriety. I was paranoid that I was going to be judged for doing drugs when, I mean, it was just, oh, it was codeine. It was just this, this thought process. And that's where I was in the beginning. But um, to think about now that I'm like, it's really about the behavior and the intent, right? I mean, yes. I still suffer. I have mental health issues. I suffer from extreme anxiety, clinically diagnosed, the same with depression. And when those things happen, there are other types of substances that can help. And in for me, if having a drink that has CBD without THC in it, TCH, THC? THC. Yeah, I was get confused. I'm the worst with acronyms just in general. But you know, those are the things like I I felt in the very beginning that there were there was no relief for me. I shouldn't be taking my mental medication that I had prescribed from my doctor, that I shouldn't be taking this this cough syrup that had something a little extra in it for me to like reduce my fever. And now again, like you said, with the recovery, you're just growing and you're learning and you're understanding and helping yourself relieve other pains without the purpose of looking to just numb out is completely, in my opinion, very much okay. I agree. A hundred percent. Okay. Well, podcast's over. That's all I needed is for Lisa Lee to agree. <laughs> we, we agree. Well, I think for me, and, and I always say this, like what I'm in, I'm a person in long-term recovery. And what that means for me is that I've been able to build a life that I don't regularly need, regularly need to escape from. Yes. And to me, that's it. It's like, if you are building this life, you're changing your circumstances and, and that requires getting help, Right. If you're if you're experiencing homelessness, that requires housing. You not be in recovery, sustain recovery out there when you're sleeping in a tent. Like your life sucks. I totally get why you would want to escape, right? Yeah. But then you get inside and you right you you can you have room. Your basic needs are met. You have room to start thinking about other things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, you know, building that life 
requires, yeah, leaning, leaning on other people, asking for help when you need it. If it's addressing trauma, if it's addressing mental health, I do same thing, high anxiety, social anxiety, all of the things. And I just now focus on my behavior, like focus on myself managing triggers, strategies to address, like coping strategies, right? Right. There are things that I can do to keep myself well mentally and not spiral, even though, I mean, sometimes you spiral because life sucks, you know? Right. And you get up and and you you move on. Mm -hmm. And it's not, you know, I think that more people need to hear that, that there are things in life that nothing could prepare you for. Uh, the death of a parent, the death of a child, divorce, right? These big life things. And they ubiquitously suck for everyone. Right. And so learning to your, you know, reach out for help when you need it, or um having that set of strategies, like what do I do? I go for a walk, I mm-hmm. phone a friend, you know, being able to have those strategies down. And if it's going to a meeting, if that's your pathway, then go to a meeting, right? Um, But at least having these strategies in place, these supports in place that you don't feel the need to escape your life. Right. Um, You have a way to sort of manage these um, little big things in life. I love that. Little big things. Little big things. Yeah. Yeah. And really, I mean, now my drug of choice is work. Uh Uh-huh. I'd never want anything to get in the way of that. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. So many people, I just keep thinking when, when recovery month is, you know, a celebration and we discussed that you talked about this a little bit earlier about being in recovery, really. I mean, the idea behind that is that you're choosing health and that you're living this life that, that you want to, and that is healthy and happy. And you're consistently working on that. It's not necessarily that you're sober or that there is, while that actually, you know, yeah, we use the terminology, but it really is a greater definition. And so I think it's interesting what you were just saying, because there are so many different types of addictions, different type of behavioral issues, different types of the things, all of the things that people are in recovery from. And I'll tell you, you switch one from the other. But again, you get back to the thought process of, but is that harming me? Am I harming others? Where's my life for that? And so if volunteering consistently, like being a perpetual volunteer like myself, where you're literally doing for everyone, you know, I'll get checked on that by my family. I'll be like, you know, doing da 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 la And the husband will say, wait a minute, though. <laughs> What about us, right? Like how many weekends are you going to participate in that? Or how many, you know, missed pickups are you going to do with the kids? And you really have to balance that. And and I I will tell you, I know a lot of people in recovery that workaholism is a freaking thing. It it really is. And I agree with you. It doesn't matter what it is. If it's shopping and it's impacting your life and you're you're engaging those behaviors where you're like, oh, a little bit won't hurt, or you're kind of lying about how bad the problem is, or and, and so it could be sex, it could be um gambling, shopping, whatever. It could be physical exercise where you're like literally harming yourself. Right. It could be whatever. It's the same behaviors. And so, and it could be workaholism where you're really neglecting all of these other areas in your life. You're neglecting your physical health. I know social workers that don't urinate all day Mm. long. Like 
And we talk about this and we're like, your poor kidneys, like you're really damaging your body. So if you're, if you're starting to notice that you're harming yourself or you're neglecting your relationships with your family, whatever that is, that's to me is addiction, right? That to me is when you need to go, okay, like I need to do something about this because there's harm there. It's impacting my life. It's impacting my relationships. Um, and to me, it, it it doesn't matter whether that's heroin or, you know, volunteering or physical fitness, et cetera. Like addiction is addiction. Sure. Me. Yeah. Um, and that's again, like what hole are you trying to fill? What are you trying to escape? And I'll catch myself, you know, on my phone playing around, just mind numbing, scrolling. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, what am I not dealing with right now? Yeah. What am I escaping from? And I'm like, oh, like a whole variety of things on my to do list. (laughs) I really need to put the phone away and go tend to those things. Like my plants are thirsty. And you know what I mean? I do know what you mean because it's so true. And that's the, I, I love that. So that piece where it's really learning right now for some is what are you what are you trying to not be doing right when you're caught up for two plus hours scrolling like what is it that you should be doing or that you're just not interested in why you know I always go mm-hmm. down why I say this all the time I go down the why at least four or five times we're going to get to the layer of why don't you want to send that email why don't you want to take the time to get out of the bed why don't you want to and just keep going sooner or later I'm like oh there it is okay and I love that that's like going through the chain and saying okay what's underlying Mm -hmm. this. And, and that requires that, you know, self-evaluation, self-awareness, and ultimately self-nourishment. Yes. Right. It's like, I I better nourish that need Um, because somewhere down there is this thing that I don't want to deal with. Right. You've got to deal with it. You got to get those monsters out and give them a hug and, you know, get to know their names and sometimes kick them out. (laughs) <laughs> get out. It's get such out. a be- that's such a beautiful part of recovery is knowing that really, you know, that's where the magic is. Like figure that out. Get to the depths of it. Just don't try to keep pushing things away. It will never go away. It will never go away. It will sit inside of your tissues and your butt, like you were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Just like where's, you know, your whole body experiences this. It does. It does. And and again, like. For, for listeners out there, you cannot deal with these things when your basic needs aren't met. You're not going to be thinking about why don't I want to do these things when you are hungry, when you don't have housing, when you when you are not safe, you're in an unsafe living situation, you're experiencing abuse, you're whatever, right? Your immediate needs are going to dictate that you will never be able to really self-evaluate because you've got these more menacing, like basic survival things happening. Right. Um. So really it's a privilege when we're like, oh, what am I, you know, this is a privilege. Like we're coming from a place of privilege that we can even think about these things mm-hmm. and really understand that our, our folks that are out there still being tormented by the tyranny of the moment, by everyday, the everyday crisis of surviving, you know, that whole like, well, why don't you just change your life? And right. Why don't you just get a job? It's like, okay, well, we've got to, you've got to talk about some things first that need to happen. Right. Um, and I have seen it so often with housing first. Like mm-hmm. housing first is not just a buzzword that you say to get grant money. 
housing first is really prioritizing meeting someone's basic needs. And I've, I've seen it. Like I've housed so many people with the housing first yeah. and you get them in housing. And I've never said, you know what? You should get sober. You should think right. about recovery. I've never said that. It's like, let's address these needs. What do you need? Right. Mm-hmm. And those needs change. And pretty soon, like I can think of people, I don't want to out them because yeah. it's not my story to tell, but I never said get sober or anything like that. And now they're recovery heroes it right and they did yep. that they did yep. that work because their basic needs were met they were safe they had a roof over their head they could start thinking about these higher level things so really all of these kind of like first world problems that we have we're really privileged to have them right we could be someplace entirely different and maybe many of us have been right Anyway, how do you handle sorry tangent? No, I love the tangent because it makes me think of this question is I hear you and I know that there is a plethora of the peeps in society that hear are going to hear this and then say, well, they can make the choice just like you did. Right. So sometimes while you have what you just said, you know, we're privileged because we're in recovery. Others would say, no, I fought for this or I chose to be here. What do you say to that? What are what are the responses to, you know, those that are out there that that may be hearing you can make a change. You just have to get out of the rut. Well, um, yes, people always have choices, but sometimes you're choosing to. Um, not be beat up for that day or to not um, have someone sexually exploit you and, and, and take your money or um, you're making like very different choices Mm -hmm. because you have to. And so again, I would say like recovery is a nonlinear process that is person specific and you could, and, and also likewise, you could be living in a mansion, right? Right with billions of dollars and still feel the same way as a person experiencing homelessness who is at the depths. Like those depths are the depths. And honestly, I feel worse for people that have those high bottoms, mm-hmm. what we call high bottoms, because they're not going to jail. They're not go- they're not having all these like really rough consequences that kind of help push us into some behavior change. There are no consequences sometimes. And I think for me, that feels like much worse. I'm like, oh, like I have a lot of empathy empathy for that because it takes some folks a lot longer because it's like they just have a higher bottom or whatever. I I guess that's how you can think about it. I think of it as less motive factors for change. But again, that looks different Mm -hmm. for everyone. And so, um, so I would say like, yeah, I did make that choice and that looks different for everyone. Yeah. Um and it is not a linear process. Right. Well, and what you what you just said too is with the with the housing first, right? That's that's basic 101 is the environment, right? Like mm-hmm. if you I you go in a barbershop, you sit there long enough, you're going to get a haircut. You go in the bar and you keep you know, hanging out and ordering your club soda, one you, you're likely going to order beer, and then you're likely going to do You know, like you have to get yourself out of that that space. So yeah, if you're in a place of homelessness and you're you're literally trying to survive the streets, 
and recognize that you may or may not have food or you may or may not get sexually violated tonight. Those are on top of mind. And to be able to say, you know what, I really wish I'd stop doing drugs today or I I don't want to be in this in this place. I, w- I want to go somewhere else to get help. Let me just go down the street and call that number that everybody's been talking about. Like who's listening? No, they're not getting this information, right? Yeah. Well, and I think so we did a study on this. We're we're hoping oh. to publish this paper. Um, Dr. Swigert and I, um, along with a whole bunch of folks who helped along the way, shout out to Foundation for Recovery and Track B for helping to recruit participants and provide a space that we can we could conduct these interviews. But yeah, we and we asked like, if you did want to get treatment, like where would you get that information? And we asked people who are housed. We asked people who are without shelter. We asked people in rural areas and urban areas. And there was a resounding theme of, we would want to hear this from people, not a billboard, not an ad on YouTube, not, um, not any of those things. We'd want to hear it from a person. Wow. Community outreach, um, makes a difference because it's that relationship building. And then you have someone to go to when you're ready to change. And actually, so having said that, I will say that again, back to harm reduction, um, there was this longitudinal study by Alex Wodak and Annie Cooney that ended up turning into a World Health Organization white paper. If anybody's interested and they want to look at this, um, Alex Wodak and Annie Cooney, and I think it was published in 2005, They looked at efficacy of syringe services programs Mm -hmm. and one of the unintended benefits of this, this setting, this syringe services program, which is often thought about conceived in the popular imagination is like this space of quote unquote enabling. Right. Um, They found that people were more likely to enter into, to treatment and Mm -hmm. recovery services through this setting because they had established that trusting relationship with someone. And when they were done, when they were having that feeling like I did in San Francisco, like, God, I just don't want to do this anymore. I don't know Mm -hmm. what to do, but I don't know what, I don't want to do this anymore. You had somebody to turn to and say, I don't want to do this anymore. And I will say working in harm reduction, I no longer work in harm reduction. I, I volunteer still in that space. Yeah. But um, when I was working in that space, I saw that happen all the time mm-hmm. where people would come in and they're like, I'm done. Right. Or they were done. They came back only to thank the person oh. and show them how good they were doing because they were done. Wow. And so I really feel like people and relationships are really, really important, uh, an important piece of recovery capital. Um, and just like kind of the the heart of our experience as a human are those relationships. Um, we know that social isolation and lack of social relationships are one of those social determinants of health that really impact people's, you know, life expectancy and health. Mm-hmm. And so I believe really strongly in those relationships. And I I also think that that's kind of the power in so many different recovery pathways is you do have a group of people that you form relationships with. Right. And I think that that's essential. And even 
even if like one of those typical recovery pathways isn't for you, dear listener, mm-hmm. find something, a book club, right? I'm a total introvert. Like that is totally my, my jam is like, oh, book club. I can be <laughs> social, but still nerdy and introverted <laughs> and weird and awkward. And so, but you'll still form relationships with people. Yeah. If, you know, and so, and I really think that that is at the heart of all of this. Yes. The opposite of addiction is connection. connection. Yeah. I um want to thank you so much for coming on. I am so glad that we had this time one-on-one. Thanks, Lori. I appreciate you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Recovery Hour podcast. Successful podcasts equal subscribers and good ratings. Please take a few minutes to rate, review, and subscribe. To learn more about me, your host, Lori Windfell, jump on over to therecoveryhour.com. Here you'll find information on my coaching and speaking practices, as well as information on guests of the show. If you're still listening to this and you haven't subscribed to my mom yet, what are you doing? You're lame. So go do it right now. All right, all right, calm down. Sorry about that. He's just really excited for this to be successful since I I've been spending all of my free time on this project and not with him. While you aren't lame, as my son suggests, I would really appreciate a few minutes of your time to subscribe. While it doesn't seem like much, it really does help my goal in spreading the word of recovery. Until next time, let's continue to inspire, live, and give.